We've been looking through the book of Daniel. Daniel's Old Testament, six, seven centuries before Jesus um, was born. And it tells a story of a young man torn from his family by an, empire, an emperor in what is modern-day Iraq, um, the, the king of the Babylonian Empire, a man called Nebuchadnezzar, taking these young lads to go and educate them in the city of Babylon and uh, really wanting to conform them into sort of his best elite. Um, and so Daniel's this guy. He's taken, as it were, from his sort of safe environment in Jerusalem, Zion, the heavenly city, the place which is the um, apple of God's eye, and in, in many ways that the Jews considered to be um, the greatest city on the planet. And he's taken from there, from his home, and placed in the heart of darkness, in this place called Babylon, which stood for everything which they were against in terms of um, worship of idols and worship of man and everything that man can achieve without God. And so, in a way, this book serves as a pattern because the New Testament talks about us being Christians, as being like Daniel, we're kind of, uh, in a sense, our home is not here. Our home is with God. And yet we're in exile. We're taken, we're put in places where we don't feel we necessarily completely belong. And, you know, like a third culture kid, you can sort of feel like you are in from two places and you're not quite sure which is home and there's always that tension. And uh, so that was for guys like Daniel and so it is for Christians living in a place like London. And so one of the, the great questions we've been wrestling with as we've walked through um, the, the first few chapters is how, how you're supposed to live in, in the world, what it means for a Christian to live in the world, which has got to be one of the most important questions you could ever ask if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a, a Christ follower. Today, it's a little bit more the question of why. Why are we here at all? And I think that, as you'll see, we're going to read the passage in a couple of moments. The two main characters, it would seem, are Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, on the one hand, is there as God's sort of voice to the culture. He's there with a sense of purpose, a sense of mission that he's called to speak into the heart of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is in the city for an entirely different reason. He's there to build up his own career, if we can put it like that. I mean, everything around him he owned. But he's there to advance his own life, his own mission, his own ambition, his own achievements, his own success. And really, when you're reading a chapter like this, you maybe fall into one or, or other of those, those pairs of shoes. You read this story, you're either Daniel, here with a sense of calling to the city as a transformer of the city, like London, with a sense of God's calling on your life, or you're here like Nebuchadnezzar, wanting to build something for yourself. And I think that's the way we need to look at this. I want us to read from verse 1, chapter 4. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but we'll read most of it. So I'll move fairly quickly. King Nebuchadnezzar. So this is interesting. In this chapter, he's the one writing the chapter. It's a bit unique in the book of Daniel, but it's his voice that you're hearing. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So he opens by praising God. And you're thinking, 
How on earth did he get to that point? Now he tells you the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, this is Daniel's alternative name, Chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed with these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew, became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. There's a picture, this great tree, and Daniel's going to tell him, you are the tree. You've probably all seen the film Avatar. You remember the big tree they all the blue things live in? Nebuchadnezzar is like that. It's him, his power, his greatness, his largesse. Under him, people can prosper if they love him. He's the tree. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus. This is some kind of angelic being speaking, saying, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and a bronze amid the tender grass of the field, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Daniel's going to go on to explain to him, and this is what's going to happen to him. He's going to lose his mind. He's going to go insane. And he's going to become like a cow and go into the fields and eat grass and and be unable to rule his kingdom for a certain amount of time, seven periods of time probably seven years. It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. This is the most important line in the chapter because it's actually repeated three times. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. So there we have some insight into Daniel's character. He's a man who, despite being torn from his homeland by this king, actually feels an affection for him, an admiration for him, and a compassion for him and what he's about to experience in the next seven years. He just tells him the interpretation of the dream in the next section. So just turn the page. On the top of the page, it just says this. Verse 28. All this 
came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. It all happened. Then we scan down to verse 34. It says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I said to you as we started that when you're reading this chapter, you're you're in Babylon, you're in London, you're in a city that in many ways is opposed to God. And you are one of two characters. You're either in the shoes of Daniel, with a sense of mission to the city, or you're in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes, as one who wants to live off the city and feed your own ambitions and so on. But actually, the main character in Daniel chapter 4 is, is neither of them. The main character is God. I think that this chapter shows us an enormous amount about the way God deals with you. What, how he works in your life, how he wants to change you and, and challenge you and shape you and warn you and transform you. And it's from that angle that I want us to think about what this chapter is about. I want to show you a few things, a few great principles of the way God deals with us and what he wants from us. And the first is this, that God desires the worship that he is due. He desires your worship. Above all, thinking about this man Nebuchadnezzar, what is the main problem with him in this chapter? I know that we could say, well, it's probably that he wasn't a very nice man. And certainly, you know, his tendency to like to kill everyone who even disagrees with him would indicate that. And Daniel definitely challenges him in one of the verses we didn't read. He said, you know, there's, there's a possibility of hope, he says, if you break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. In other words, if you change your ways, maybe God will have mercy on you and he won't allow you to go insane in this way. But actually, I don't think that's the main point of this chapter. It's not really about his behavior. The chapter is about something more fundamental, more foundational to who this king is as a person what drives him, what motivates him. And so, in a sense, also it speaks to us in this way. The the whole story is about the issue of worship. Who and what you worship. It's about that deeper issue because it's his failure to acknowledge God that is the root of all that he becomes. That's why I told you that three times in this chapter, this same expression is said. In verse 17, first of all, God does this to him to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Says it three times. In other words, God's whole desire for Nebuchadnezzar was that Nebuchadnezzar would begin to see reality rightly. That God is first and that I am below him 
and that he is worthy of my worship. Why is worship the fundamental issue? Why is it the fundamental issue for Nebuchadnezzar and for you? And I think, well, part of the reason is because what or how you worship then does transform the way you live. So Nebuchadnezzar is not evil for no reason. He's evil because he worships evil gods, because he worships himself, and because his whole worship transforms the way he lives. And certainly the Bible will tell you that what you worship is what is the most profound shaping influence on your life. You become like what you worship. The things you most adore in life shape you. The things you most run after in life transform you, make you like themselves. So if you're a person who runs after pleasure, then you become a kind of licentious, lusty person who's with insatiable appetites. If you worship um, possessions, then you become greedy. And this is how worship works. The things you worship transform you. And certainly, worship is important from that perspective. But I think it goes even deeper still than just your behavior. What the, the central issue of this whole chapter is to do with the whole thing of pride. You saw how it ended on that last verse when Nebuchadnezzar says that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Worship and pride, this is what it's about. And they're two completely opposite tendencies of the human heart. You're either worshipping God or you're pulling in the opposite direction in pride. They fight each other. These are the two things that are most at war in your heart all the time. Worship or pride. Pride is, and certainly Nebuchadnezzar really shows us a brilliant sort of portrayal of what pride looks like. Pride says, I did this. We didn't read this, but just scan down to verse 30. Just before Nebuchadnezzar goes insane, this is how we find him. It says that he's walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. It's the greatest city on the planet, by the way. It's beautiful. And it says, the king answered and said, Is this, is not this great Babylon, which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. If he were alive today, at that point, he'd be taking a selfie and posting it on Instagram and just saying, look at what I did. You know, we do this all the time. That's pride in a nutshell. It's a person saying, I did this. He looks at his gifts, his abilities, his ability to command attention and the love of people, his, his charisma, his ruthlessness, his wisdom, and he says, I did this. Worship is the opposite. It says, you did this, God. Whatever good I have and am, whatever I enjoy is of your grace. You did this. Which is why in the next verse, I love the way the tension's built here. He says, oh, didn't I do all this? And it's at that moment, verse 31, it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth. So at the moment when he's most adoring himself. It says, there fell a voice from heaven. What does the voice say? It says, the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men. God wants to make a point to us all that the core battle of your heart is always the tension between pride and worship. Between whether you are looking to yourself, building yourself up, building your own kingdom, whether you're involved in self-worship or whether your life is truly submitted to God and whether you acknowledge him as the 
the fountain of all good things that you ever enjoy. So pride then is a kind of a form of self-worship. It's very clear on his lips. We do it in much more subtle ways. I don't think there's many people who go around, maybe like Donald Trump, who's saying stuff exactly like this. But, but we do think it. We do feel it. We do find ways of more subtly, more cleverly, cleverly, clever, <laughs> unlike my speaking, communicating it to other people. We speak of our achievements. We speak of our gifts. We speak of our success. And the trouble with it is that it's a misguided view of reality. That's what God is taking issue with in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's why he keeps saying the whole point is that, the, that we would see that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar does not understand the reality that he's in. He doesn't understand that God has given him these gifts and these opportunities and put him where he is at this time. He thinks it's all him, and he doesn't realize it's God. To me, this is one of the most tragic ironies of, of you know, the new atheism that's cropped up in the last sort of 10, 20 years. You know, some of these guys who write books, most vociferous, anti-God, anti-religion books, you know, I think about some of the guys who called themselves, self-stylized themselves as the four horsemen of atheism, guys like Dawkins and Hitchens, the late Hitchens and these other guys. The, the trouble is, and the great irony of it all, is that they do not realize the degree to which they're depending on the God that they are attacking. They don't realize that the gifts they have, the abilities they have, were given to them by God. They don't realize that the mouth they use was God's construction. They don't realize that the world that they so admire and, and praise in the fields of science and exploration is the, the world that God put together for them to enjoy. And they serve a picture of what it means to be like Nebuchadnezzar, to think that you somehow got here by your own volition and choice and that you are worthy of praise somehow. There's nothing more ridiculous in the whole world. You didn't even choose your own mother. God wants to expose this basic hole in the heart. The proud person is a person who doesn't know who or how to say thank you to someone greater. He wants to get in there and expose the lie that the proud are believing. And so what happens to him? The way God deals with Nebuchadnezzar is that he falls into this insanity, this craziness. He loses his kingdom and he starts to eat grass like an ox Seven years go past, and immediately it happens to him. His nails grow like claws. His hair, it says, grows as long as eagles' feathers. He looks all the world like a total lunatic. And I think that there are a couple of really profound reasons why God does that specific thing to him that we need to take note of. One is that God wants to show him that whatever reason that he had, in other words, his intelligence his rationality, his abilities, and he was a great man in many respects. Whatever he had was a gift from God. And God is showing him, listen, all I need to do is take my hand off you. And all of it melts away. 
Nebuchadnezzar begins to unravel and he becomes like an animal. God is trying to show that when he withdraws his favor from us, his upholding grace, and it's my total conviction. The New Testament says that that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. I believe that even God's worst enemies, God is upholding them by his grace. We call it common grace. It's the good will of God towards us that he still gives us more time to repent, more time to know his mercy, more time to enjoy his kindness. But God's showing here that as soon as he takes his hand off, look what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, his whole, everything that made him great begins to melt away and he becomes like one of the beasts of the field. In Romans 1, Paul's talking about the whole issue of worship and he's saying all people everywhere have good enough reasons to worship the living God because all they need to do is look at creation and recognize his power, his might, his majesty. And he says instead of that, he says that their futile minds, they become futile in the thinking, their foolish hearts are darkened. In other words, we become stupid. And what we do is he says we we claim to be wise, but we become fools and we exchange God's glory. We we cast his glory away and instead we start worshiping creation. Now this is a picture of exactly what it means to be a 21st century secularist person. That the world is all that there is. All that there is, all the meaning that there is in life is the, the stuff of this world. Material things, creation, culture, pleasure. And we've, we've cast aside God's glory, the higher reason for which we are created, and instead embraced everything around us as though that were the highest purpose of life. And he says, that's when you become most stupid in your thinking, futile. Your minds, your hearts are darkened. And then he goes on and says, look, this is what happens next. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator who's blessed. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What Paul's saying is this, he's saying, when you worship yourself and the world in which we live, and that's your highest reason for life, everything about God's glory, the seed of his glory in you, remember you're a person created in the image of God, which is why you are so unique, those things begin to erode and be pulled away from you and you become more and more like an animal. And this, to me, is the underlying spiritual or theological reason why, when we look at the world around us, we see so much animalistic behavior. We see aggression and competition. Where people, you know, I don't think that we can honestly look at ourselves, despite all our technology, and say that we're that much better than animals in the way we behave towards each other, the way we oppress and use, and neglect, and harm, whether willfully or passively. We, we're people given over to lusts. I mean by that, just desire is king of the human heart. Whatever I want to do, I do. Whatever pleasures I want to have, I take for myself. Now what in that is any different from the way an animal behaves? And of course, consumerism, another example. This animalistic behavior. And the Bible is trying to show us that when God takes his hand off of us, we descend into 
Everything that, that, about his glory that is in humankind gets removed, and what's left is just the animal base instincts. That's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. That, in my mind, is what we see happening in our culture too. But another facet of this is that God wants to show him that to not worship is to already be insane. What do I mean? Strong words. What do I mean? I mean this, that if you were to go to a mental hospital, or as they used to be called, a lunatic asylum, and you go and sit down opposite one of the patients there, that patient might tell you that they are Napoleon. They might tell you that they're Jesus. I don't know, they might come up with anything. One of the consistent things that you will see about so many people who have gone truly insane is that their view of reality is totally wrong. You have a sense that the real world as I know it has gone through some kind of distortion in their mind and they're seeing the world wrongly. But from a biblical point of view, if reality is God is our creator and he has made this world and we are called as his creatures to worship him, then to take God out of the picture and be left with just this world floating in a vacuum, self-generated, as though that were possible, isn't that the essence of what it means to be insane? So when Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace and saying that I did all this, he's no less insane at that moment than he is when he loses all sense of reason and becomes like an ox in the field. God wants to show us what it says in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's saying that it's it's not about how clever you are. It's saying that at the essence of your being, there is a lack of wisdom if you cannot truly acknowledge that God is there, that he made you, and that he is worthy of your worship. This whole chapter then is about God saying, I want the worship that I'm due. Which brings me to the next great principle that we see in this chapter, that God disciplines proud people. I want you to ask yourself, in this story... When is Nebuchadnezzar in the most dangerous place spiritually? When is he most in danger? And I think the answer is right almost at the very beginning in verse 4 when it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. One of the reasons why so many people around us do not sense any need for God or do not feel any kind of spiritual hunger or desire to know him or desire to be made right with him is because when they look at their life, things feel right, they feel easy, they feel that they have no need for him. That was Nebuchadnezzar. That's a huge percentage of the population in a country like ours because we enjoy so much prosperity, so much ease, so much comfort, so much stuff poured into our laps that we didn't earn and don't deserve and didn't choose for ourselves. I think this is one of the deepest reasons for the the lack of spiritual hunger that I see in the world all around me. People just don't feel their need for God. So in a way... Whilst pride can look like Nebuchadnezzar just boasting and singing his own praises, pride can be a much, much, much more subtle thing than that in the heart. It can just be the person who says, 
I'm fine. I don't need God. I'm fine. To say I don't need God is to fail to realize how much you've been needing him ever since you were made. How does God deal with us? How does God deal with Nebuchadnezzar? The Bible says in a few different places that God, he humbles the proud. It's what he does. He, he, he looks at the proud and he works in them to humble them. And that this is an example of his loving discipline. I have two kids. From six months of age, Seth w- w- began to express his own will and we began to discipline him in whatever ways we could with the six-month-old. He would go for the plug sockets and we would Im- try and teach him that that's wrong. And it was an expression of our passionate love for him as our son. If I let him do whatever he wants, then I hate him. If I discipline him, then it's because I love him. I want him to grow up safe, healthy, well-formed. So when we see God in this chapter breaking into the life of a proud person who doesn't realize their need for God, then you've got to understand that this is the essence of God's kindness when he trips you up when you think everything's going fine. Nebuchadnezzar, in being warned first in the dream and that interpretation coming through Daniel, he has an opportunity to repent. In fact, Daniel puts it to him very clearly. He says, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you to break off your sins. He says, you have a chance now because God is, is warning you. You have a chance to get things right. I think the most dangerous place in the world is to be the person who lives a life of ease and never feels the warning power of God. What God does is he, he speaks to him to humble him and then he, he inflicts suffering on him to push his face into the dirt to make him understand just how much he needs God. How does God discipline the proud? Essentially, it comes down to this thing. that he, God has many ways of uncovering your need. If you're a person who's walking without acknowledging God or loving him or worshipping him, then God has many ways of showing you your need. And it's usually by uncovering it, by, by taking away the things that make you feel comfortable and at ease in the world. I've seen this a number of times. People I've known who have been walking actually against God their entire life. I think about my granddad. He was a horrible man, and I don't hesitate to say it. He was a horrible man. Lived into his 80s. And as he was dying of cancer, he experienced a profound heart change. He used to mock our faith. But on his deathbed in the hospital, when my dad went to see him, he took him through Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And though he'd been a lifelong enemy of God, an atheist, and an angry and bitter and abusive man, God did a miraculous work in his heart and saved him. I've known more than one person come to faith even as they were dying. And when I look at that, 
I feel two things. On the one hand, I feel a profound gratitude to the God of mercy, who because he can save a person like that on their deathbed, I know he can save anyone. But I also feel a, a sense of regret. You know, how different would all of our lives be in my family if my granddad had been saved in his 20s rather than in his 80s? How different would my dad's life have been? How different would the entire family be? And I feel a sense of sorrow that that humbling didn't come earlier. It's the mercy of God when the humbling does come earlier. And he does it in all kinds of ways. Sometimes, and by the way, it's much easier to accept this happening in someone else's life than in your own. It's much easier to look at a chapter like this and think, well, Nebuchadnezzar kind of deserved it. He was a brutal dictator after all. But when you look at your own life and then bad things happen to you, and you go through horrendous experiences, and maybe God's trying to wake you up, the great challenge is that you can tip into anger against God as though he were not loving, as though he were not kind. It's much easier to accept in someone else's life than in your own. But some of the ways that God seeks to do this, and we see this running all through the scriptures, that he uses experiences of pain and loss and suffering to turn people's hearts, to humble them, to make them realize just how much they need him. Sometimes it's through suffering in your circumstances. When things do not go right as you would hope they would. Sometimes it's through loss. Losing things precious to you or people precious to you. Sometimes it's through sickness. You know how it is when you have a small pain in your body, you suddenly realize how, how much you've been neglecting to say thank you for your health. You can have a little toe that's sore and suddenly you realize I've been enjoying nothing but good health for the last six years. Sometimes God allows us to experience sufferings to awaken us to our need. Sometimes it's through your conscience. Everything in your life can be perfect. Your career on track. Your family is around you. You've got everything. People would look on you with envy. But there is something wrong in the seat of your soul. That's God at work. Disturbing you. Awakening your conscience. Allowing you to realize that without him, you're lost. God doesn't just do this in the lives of people who are not Christians. He does it in the lives of Christians as well. Because many of us, even if we've been walking with God a long time, find ourselves occasionally straying into self-worship and pride and all the things that are ugly. God has ways, talks about it in the book of Hebrews, of disciplining his children who he loves. And he does it in compassion for you. He wants you, in the words of Jesus, to come to the point where you recognize your need of him. And as Jesus puts it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you recognize that your bank account, spiritually speaking, is empty, in fact, it's in the negative, that's when you are receptive to God's help.
Which brings me to my last big principle, teaching truth about God in this chapter, which is that God loves to save. And I would add that he can save anybody. Nebuchadnezzar, as I've said, is a bad man. When he has an enemy, his preferred method of dealing with them is to have them torn limb from limb. Occasionally thrown into fire or whatever seems most appropriate or takes his fancy at that moment in time. He's not a good man. He's not a pleasant man. But at the very start of this chapter, we encounter him as an evangelist. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. And he goes on, let me tell you about God. And the great puzzle when you encounter him in this moment is how on earth did he change? What happened to him? How is it that he goes from being one of the most brutal, harsh, horrible dictators on the face of the planet to being somebody who who loves God? And whose whose whole heart and demeanor is transformed. He becomes a humble man. The very last verse of the chapter, it says that I I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. In other words, whatever you will, that is what is good. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar has experienced a complete transformation of heart. And I think that one of the reasons this story is in the Bible, one of the things that we need to take away from it, is that God loves to save impossible cases. You go all the way into the New Testament, you meet a man called Saul, or Paul as he's later called. He is a brutal, harsh, rigid prig of a man. And his whole, his whole ambition when we meet him is to find Christians and have them slaughtered. Now you think he, if he were alive today, he's the equivalent of one of these guys in the Middle East doing it for sport. That's him, out of a zealous passion for the religion that he believes. Jesus does a mighty work in his life, saves him, turns him around. He becomes one of the greatest missionaries that the church has ever known in its entire history. And when Paul's talking about this, In one of his letters to his young friend Timothy, he writes it like this. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You think, what saying? He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He says Jesus' whole purpose was to come and rescue the most darkened hearts. And he says, I was that one. And then he tells us why Jesus chose to save him. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, so that you and I, when we read the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and Paul, many, many centuries later, should never Doubt the power of Christ's death on the cross. We believe in a gospel of Jesus being brutally killed on the cross, but for the purpose that he would take the punishment for your sins, that everything that you are and do that is against God, all the pride that we've been describing, 
all of the, the tendency to run in the opposite direction from God, all of the guilt associated with that will be laid upon Christ's shoulders. Everything that your conscience bothers you about will be laid on his shoulders. And that his death is strong enough to save even the darkest heart. Which is why I am totally convinced that there is nobody alive on the planet today who is beyond the reach of Christ. He's proved it to us that he can do it. Saul's whole life is transformed to turn around. Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, is turned around to some degree. And friend... However you feel about yourself, if you're a person who's come to recognize something of your brokenness and your need, these stories exist to show you that Jesus wants you. He wants you. When you meet a man like Nebuchadnezzar in the, verse, verses, in the first verses of this chapter, and you meet a man who seems humble and godly, you have to realize there is always a story that's gone behind that transformation. And it usually follows something like the same pattern. Something of God's warning to you. Something of a humbling experience. Then something of a restoration and a repentance. As finally your heart is humbled enough that you can turn to God. And then what we might call a glorification Nebuchadnezzar talks about it at the end of the chapter. He says that not only did I get my mind back, but I got everything else back as well in, in excess, beyond what I had before. To me, this speaks of the way God loves to change lives. He doesn't just save you and then keep you in the naughty corner for the rest of eternity. When God brings people into his family, wipes away all your past, and gives you a fresh start, he begins pouring stuff into your lap that you never imagined or could have deserved. It's called the grace of God. He loves to show you how much he loves you. And so as I close, I want to just ask you, where are you in this story right now? And how will you react? If we're taking the trajectory of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, are you in a place where God is, is warning you? That's the first question. Where maybe you, you've, through God's grace, he's been speaking to you and giving you opportunity to turn from a particular thing or turn to him entirely because you, you know that you don't know him. Is he speaking to you in that way? Is he warning you? There's a right way to respond to that. Maybe you're a person who you're experiencing something of God's humbling right now. Remember, that's what happened next for Nebuchadnezzar. He became humbled. His face was literally in the dirt. What a picture. If you've experienced something of the discipline of God in your life, Maybe it's in your circumstances. Maybe it's just in your heart, in your emotions, in what's the unsettling that's been going on. How will you react? The question always is, can, can he humble you enough? Or will you hold out? Another question I'd ask is, well, is God restoring you at the moment? Maybe you've come through a season where you've seen something of the lashing of God's discipline on your, on your life. And there's light. There's a sense of hope coming into your heart that you suddenly realize the purpose for which God ordained all, the, all of this in the first place. 
And rather than turning to anger and bitterness against him, you suddenly realize this was his affection for you, his love for you, his desire for you that allowed you to go through this in the first place. That's the conclusion Nebuchadnezzar comes to when he can say things like he does at the end when he says that his works are right and, and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. In other words, he said, he's saying, I deserved everything that happened to me. I deserve worse. I should be dead. But God in his mercy brought me through it and I thank him that he gave me the opportunity to repent, to change, to be restored. Is that you? Are you at that point in in your journey, your spiritual journey. But God's put you through enough that you can now say in honesty, okay, Lord, I recognize I need you and I want to surrender now. I've, I've been running away from you for long enough. Wow, if you're there, man, that should be the happiest moment of your life. Oh my goodness. When people come to that point and they recognize that, wow, God is a loving father and he's loved me all along. That moment, you can never forget that moment. And part of it is a choice you make. Nobody becomes a Christian without willingly embracing Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for everything I've done. I recognize you died for me on the cross and I want to be yours forever. You're Lord, I'm not. You're the king, I'm not the king. I want to surrender to your will. I want you to do with my life whatever you want. I want you to put me where you want me. I want you to use me how you want to use me. When a person comes to that point in life, that is the most precious thing in the whole world. Jesus says that there is a party that happens in heaven when that happens. He says that was his whole purpose. He says, if I had a hundred sheep and one goes missing, when I bring that sheep home, I throw a party, I rejoice, I am so happy because I care about your soul. That's the picture. That's what we see God doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He's the sheep in the field eating the grass and God goes out for him, picks him up and brings him back and says, okay, you can come home now. I've gone after your soul and I want you. Repentance is the sweetest thing you can ever experience because with repentance comes God's kind word to you that you're mine. It's why we baptize people. It's a new start, a fresh season, a washing of all that was wrong about your life and a a resurrection, a lifting out of the water where you say, I belong to you now, Christ. And maybe you're in the last season where God is, like Nebuchadnezzar, is lavishing so much good stuff on him. God's doing it to you. And you just look at your life and think, God, none of this I deserved, but you're kind to me. I'd only say, don't make the same mistake he made in the first place where you forget to thank the one who's being kind to you. Friends, we're going to take communion as we close. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're wanting our hearts to be aligned rightly with Christ again. Because it was in the moment of his darkest hour, his brokenness and his abandonment on the cross, that he suffered something that you would never have to suffer if you love him and believe in him. Nebuchadnezzar did not experience the worst. 
The worst is to be cast out of God's presence forever. Jesus experienced the worst on the cross when he was rejected by God. But he did it that you might be able to pass through death and know life. When we take the bread and drink the wine, we're wanting to come back as worshippers, to cast our pride aside and to realign our hearts with the Saviour who loves us, died for us and has won us.